Psalm 21, heavily connected to Psalm 20, also uh, placed before Psalm 22, which is the great suffering passage or psalm of, of Jesus. So when you're reading uh, this sort of little threefold uh, series of psalms, you're reading about David's Lord, David's King, uh, which is Jesus. And he's writing in some regards to his own experience, but mostly about Jesus and the, the coming King who will be established forever and ever, and he will be established through his suffering. So when we think of David, I think we must see that David had a very clear view of who this Christ would be, probably more profound than many of the Old Testament writers. Uh, he knew his Saviour. He knew who would save him, and it was his son who would rule forever and ever. And you see that through his writing. We'll see that today through Psalm 21. So let's read Psalm 21. We'll pray for God's guidance, and, and then we'll unpack the passage. It says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desires and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you met him with rich blessings. You set a, a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bow. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will praise, we will sing and praise your power. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray and, and seek His counsel as we unpack this passage. Well, Holy Father, we come to Your Word again and we are seeking from You uh, riches of, of wisdom uh, and clarity. May, Lord, we... May we be bent towards your word and not bend the word towards us as so easy as it is so easy for us to want to change the wording slightly or soften the blow a bit as we think of your holy judgment and your uh, righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would be those who are humble of heart and approach your word as living water and and, and food to eat so that it may nourish us and guide us and teach us and be a light to our path in, in the darkness of this world. 
Lord, may you help us to apply it to our day, apply it to our culture, to see the schemes of man and the culture war that goes on at the moment and to be able to clearly articulate the mischief devices of, of our, our time, knowing that they are clearly different to David's time. But Lord, we know that whether it's the wicked in David's time or the wicked in ours, they will not succeed. So may we have great confidence in you, confidence in our King Jesus who has won in the past and who will win in the end. We pray for your name to be exalted, for sinners to be humble and holy living to be proclaimed in your presence. We pray this. Amen. This psalm uh, is a thanksgiving psalm for the answers to the prayer prayed in Psalm 20. So Psalm 20 last week we saw was a, was a prayer and a song which was sung by the men as they went off to war. It was a king teaching his people how to pray for him. It was a prayer we see answered in David's life to some degree, but completely in David's king's life in Jesus. The climax of Psalm 20 comes when the song, in, uh, when the song gets to in verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Imagine marching out to war, singing this song, declaring who your trust is in. The enemy comes saying, well, they trust in chariots and horses. They think that's an advantage to them. They're not just men with swords and clubs and shields, but they have strength in horses and protection in their chariots. Now, they can't say that they trust in horses and chariots if they don't get in the chariots and on the horses. If they just sit at home on the couch, what they are saying is that they don't trust in their chariots and horses. Well, David is the same. The reason he marches off to war and leaves the rooftop of his house and the comfort of his palace is because he trusts in the Lord who fights for him. So when we look at Psalm 20, we're seeing this declaration that says we're doing something, we're actively pursuing a task because we trust in God. Well, Psalm 21 is all about trusting in the name of the Lord. It's a thanksgiving psalm for the vast victories that the king has won. And it's praise to the future victories that he will win over the wicked. So in order to think about victories that have, have been won and victories that will be won, we are, of course, talking about ultimately Christ's victory over sin, Satan, death in the world, and then finally his victory when he will fully put away death and fully put away the wicked and fully put away sin. But in the New Testament, it speaks of a reality that we have now. In Ephesians 1, to th uh, in Ephesians 1 verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what are these spiritual blessings? Are they just things we wait for in heaven? Or, what, or, or are they things that we see in this life? Well, what we gain from the Psalms is that, that life is worth living. Life is worth living fully and with joy and gladness and that death is tragic. Although we win as Christians when we die, it still shouldn't happen that way. Death is always bad. Even when it's a 95-year-old saint with his people singing psalms around his bed, it is still sad because it's not how the world was meant to be. We need to recover the blessings of life and know that God intended us to be immortal souls that would live forever in the Garden of Eden before sin. What we need to see is that living life under a good king means joyful and glad blessings in all areas of life. But having the wrong king leads to worshipping these blessings. The right king knows that living all of life means living for the king, Jesus Christ. So we are to follow the right king as we look at this psalm. We will see two very sort of distinct parts of the psalm. The first part is, is verses 1 to 7. And the first part is about King Jesus and how we need to imitate this king. So living in Christ means living like Christ. And the second part is verses 8 to 13, which, means which is about exalting Christ in His power to judge. Exalting Christ in His power to judge. So two very distinct parts of this psalm. Living in Christ means living like Christ. And the second part is exalting Christ in His power to judge. Well, starting in, uh, verse, starting in our first section, verses 1 to 7, we're actually going to pick up in verse 7. Now, both of these parts have a summary verse to conclude them and to give us the disposition of the person writing it. So in verse 7, we see it say, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he has not been moved. The word for here shows us the connection with the previous six verses. The reason the king has strength, salvation, desires, requests, crowns, life, joy and gladness is because of where his trust lies. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in Yahweh. The reason he has blessings in life is because of who he trusts in. Now we can do what Jesus tells us to do and buy people's fruit, know, that what, know what they trust in. And the book of Kings is really helpful for this, since this, this psalm is about a king and about the king over the people, knowing that whatever way the king goes, the people will go as well. And there's two really clear kings that 
are a great example to being a king who is trusting in the Lord and a king who doesn't. Uh, Manasseh is the king who doesn't. And in 2 Kings 21, 4-6 it says, And he built altars in, altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the courts of the house of the Lord. And he burnt his sons as offerings, and used fortune tellers and omens, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh is an example of a king who does not trust in the Lord. But Josiah, in 2, 2 Kings 23, so two kings after Manasseh, he is a king who does trust in the Lord. And we know this by his fruit. He disposed of the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the city, cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those who burnt incest to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. And he brought out the Ashtoreth from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron. And he burnt it at the brook, brook of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. We see very clearly that there are two different types of kings. A king who trusts in the Lord who will bear good fruit in this life and the next, and a king who doesn't trust in the Lord, who will bring bad fruit in this life and destruction in the next. The one who trusts in the Lord their God will not be moved. They'll be established and their people will be established. The one who doesn't trust in the Lord their God will see their children will be cast out of this earth. It says later in this psalm. So starting in verse 7 and then going back up to verse 1, we see verse 7 gives us the disposition of the king who receives all these blessings. In verse 1 it says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given, given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. The unmovable place of trusting in Yahweh means drawing everything from Him. It's total dependence on God for life and godliness. We see David, David examples this in his life. When repeatedly, if you follow the end of Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel and the start of 2 Samuel, repeatedly David asks the question of God, shall I go up and fight? Will you give them into my hands? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I'll certainly give the Philistines into your hands. This is a repeated phrase. Unlike the king Saul, who didn't trust in God. And instead of waiting for Samuel to come and sacrifice to God, he went off to battle on his own, sacrificing uh, unworthy, uh, an unworthy sacrifice to God. We see that a king who trusts in the Lord, the Lord their God is a king who has good fruit in his life. We also see this in Jesus. As we read David, we also always have to think of Jesus uh, and how it may relate to Jesus. And of course, when we read the first part of Psalm 21, we are seeing that it's all about Jesus as the king. 
Jesus likewise showed a complete dependence on the Father's strength. He was, in every aspect, human. He got sick like humans. He got tired like humans. He was tempted like humans, yet without sin. He prayed because He needed to pray. And Jesus demonstrates this. It was His joy to show His human weakness in public trust in God. To pray in all sorts of circumstances when He withdrew to dark places in the morning or before He was appointing His disciples, He went and sought the Lord all night. We see in Jesus a, a King who knew what it meant to be dependent, to trust in the Lord His God. But dependence requires humility. Jesus says we should trust Him like a little child or we should come to Him like a little child. Adults don't want to humble themselves to be like children in coming to God. It, it requires us to put off our intelligence and our capabilities and to come to God and accept the fact that we need Him for every aspect of life. Even if you are highly qualified in your career, or incredibly skilled mother or father, whatever it may be, you can't do it on your own. Jesus is a great example of this. He's at 12 years old there educating the Pharisees, yet he is still, as he get, gets to a fully grown man, dependent upon the Word of God in his fight against Satan. Our King showed us what it means to be humble in order to depend on God even in areas we feel capable of fulfilling. Our prayer life reveals what we trust in. Jesus' prayer life revealed to us that He needed to pray to the Lord for His strength. Our prayer life will either reveal that we think we are strong enough or that we trust in God by the amount of prayer that goes into our everyday relationships and activities. Is your work covered in prayer? Your household covered in prayer? Prayer is a humble place of coming to God and saying, I trust in you, I need you, and I need your strength to do this, this task that I feel ca very capable of doing, but I still need your strength. We see in this uh, early part of the psalm, it says, you have, in verse 2, you have given him his heart's desires and not withheld the request of his lips. Our king, when he prayed, was answered. We have this wonderful prayer of Jesus in John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. And it starts in the first five verses. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Our King prayed 
And he goes on to pray for the church. He goes on to pray for his disciples. He goes on to pray that the church will be one as he and the Father are one, that we love uh, in a way that he has taught us to love. And it says that he will be answered. We also know that there are prayers that Jesus prayed that were answered no. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if, if this cup can be taken from me, but not my will, yours, Lord, be done. Well, the cup was not taken from Jesus and he drank the cup of God's wrath in full. When we look at our king from Psalm 21, when we see David's king from Psalm 20, 21, we see a king who trusts in God's goodness, trusts in God's strength and rejoices in God's salvation Whatever way that salvation may come about. Resurrection from the dead, as we see in Jesus' case. We know that Jesus was glorified with the same glory He had before the world existed. As He ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father on high. And had all His enemies put under His feet. The first thing we see is that we are to imitate our King in His trust and dependence on God, in His joy of the salvation that God brings, and this is seen through a prayerful life in all areas. The second thing we see in, these, in verses 3 to 6 is a life of joyful gladness. And we looked, a bit at this, uh, looked at this a bit last week, but I think it needs to be reiterated. It says... For you met him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you have bestowed on him. You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Well, this is a list of rich blessings. Blessings that draw you to God. They're earthly things that give us a closeness to God. And, and you could read through this and say, David received every one of these. David had a crown of fine gold on his head. He had a long life. A long and abundant life. A good life. His glory was great through salvation. He had splendor and majesty bestowed upon him. But ultimately, we see this in Jesus. Jesus has all these things. His body did not see corruption, but God brought him up from the grave and established his throne forever and ever. One of the things we don't spend much time thinking about is the joyfulness and the gladness of Jesus. We don't often spend time wrestling with the fact that, I, that Jesus loves to be joyful. He loves to be glad with the things of this world, uh, with, the thing, with the blessings that come from God. Not in a carnal, fleshly sense, of course, but in the pure sense that He knows that a blessing draws Himself to trust more in the Father who gives. We saw last week when I referred to Deuteronomy 28, 46-47 that Israel, uh, when they stopped serving God with joy and glad gladness, the curses came upon them. It says, 
They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Why did the curses of Deuteronomy 28 come upon Israel? Because they did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. To trust in the Lord like the King is to have joyfulness and gladness in life now and for all eternity. The joys of this life are not to be downplayed, but to be a foretaste of what is to come in heaven. If food is rich here on earth, it is going to be even better in heaven. If love is uh, good here on earth, then it's going to be better in heaven. If the earth is beautiful here, it's going to be better when it's the new heavens and the new earth. What you experience and what, uh, what blessings come to us here today, we need to acknowledge that they're just going to be better in heaven. It's a foretaste. It's not to be compared that the spiritual is better and the physical is, is terrible, but it's a foretaste of what is to come. All our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, all of these were blessed with long life. They saw length of days as a blessing. Psalm 128 says, Blessed is the man who sees his children's children. Do we still speak in this sort of language? Do we still think life is a blessing? That long life is a good thing? Can we see that when God sent Jesus Christ to earth to live among us, to die on the cross, it says He came to give us life and life to the full. And yeah, the Pentecostals have taken that and broadened it and made it all sorts of things that it's not. But ultimately... We have been given life here to enjoy the things of God, to enjoy them rightly so that they lead us to God all the more and give us a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth when the curse will be lifted and a Christian community will be established forever and ever. But it is about following the right king. Do we have the right order of things? Do we follow God because we get blessings from Him? Or do we trust God even when the blessings are taken away? We see this in David. Things did not go well for David. Saul, Bathsheba, his sons, Abnon and Absalom. You can go and read these stories. They were not joyful stories, yet we see a joyful position in David's life. We sung it in Psalm 42. My soul is troubled, my soul is in turmoil, but put your hope in God. We see David in Psalm 51 after he has committed adultery and murder, and he says to God, through his confession of sin, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So having the right king means putting blessings in the right place that all these blessings, earthly blessings, just draw us closer to God and not further away. Things in our life that we may label as blessings that have just drawn our hearts further from God are not blessings. 
Job's another example of, a, of, a, of someone who knew how to trust in God, who was incredibly blessed with earthly possessions, yet they were stripped from him and he still didn't curse God, it says. Simply, the things of this earth are good and should be enjoyed, but not trusted in. And we see that in our good and righteous King. He enjoyed the things of this earth. He loved his fellowship with the disciples. He was at celebrations and feasts. And we don't really get a whole lot about his demeanor, but from the Psalms, I think we do. The Psalms give us the impression of a king who was joyful and glad with the rich blessings of life as they point him closer to the new heavens and the new new earth, the promised land. Well, this first part of the psalm reminds us that the king who trusts in the Lord will not be moved and has had incredibly vast past victories. Christ has won. He went to the grave. He died the death that that we deserve. He defeated sin, Satan and death and has raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father, yet he is not finished. The king still has a place, uh, still has battles to, to fight. The king still has victories that are to come in the future. In this second part of the psalm, from 8 to 13, is about the victories that will come. The victories that the king is going to win. And it's summarized, or not summarized, but, but we get this phrase at the end in verse 13 as a statement which really calls, causes us to, to be challenged. It's a statement of praise for God's judgment. So the right king will praise God for the right judgment. And it's a question we must ask in the church today is, will we say Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power when you judge the wicked. Now, it doesn't say when you judge the wicked, but it comes straight after a very uh, descriptive picture of what it looks like to judge the wicked. The power that we sing and praise is the power of God's good and righteous judgment. One way, one way we can truly know if someone trusts the Lord is do they love His justice? Not a justice they've fashioned for themselves, but a justice that God states in the Scriptures. Do you believe God's good? And if you believe God is good, do you believe that every judgment that He lays out in Scripture is right? If you believe and acknowledge that God is good, then every judgment that He makes in the Scriptures is absolutely right. So that we, along with the whole church, can say, be exalted, O God, in your strength, we will sing and praise your power, the power that executes judgment on the wicked. Are we like David, who would sing in his psalms, like Psalm 3, strike your enemies on the jaw, O God? Well, our King Jesus was even more descriptive. 
Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven, and he spoke more of hell than any other New Testament writer. And since this psalm is about David's king, maybe we should look at what David's king says about God's judgment. R.C. Sproul writes a great summary, and I'll read his summary of the New Testament teachings on hell. It says, Jesus doesn't only reference hell, he describes it in great detail. He says it is a place of eternal, <clears throat> eternal torment, Luke 16, 23, of unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43, where the worm does not die, Mark 9, 48, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, Matthew 13, 42, and from which there is no return, even to warn ones we love, Luke 16, 19 to 31. He calls hell a place of utter darkness, Matthew 25, 30, comparing it to Gehenna, Gehenna, Matthew 10, 28, which which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abound. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed and warned about the absolute reality of hell. That was R.C. Sproul's description of what Jesus wrote, what David's king wrote about hell. So Christian, if you trust in the Lord, this means that you believe that he's good. You believe that truth abounds from him. You believe that he describes what is good, true and beautiful. And he also tells us what is wicked, evil and vile. What David is wanting, the wick, what, what David is wanting is for the wicked to be destroyed. He is not basing it off his own hatred, but off what God has taught him to hate. So do you hate rightly? Do you hate according to what God hates and love according to what God loves? Well, the psalm goes on and describes what, what it believes about, the, or how, how judgment is going to come for this king. In verse 8 it says, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. The writer, this writer from from King David, or this is written from King David to the king. In some ways he writes this for himself, that his enemies will be found out, those who hate him will be found out, but ultimately he writes it about Christ. Jesus knew who his enemies were. It says in John, he doesn't need anyone to give him a testimony of man because he knows what's in man's heart. He knows that in the midst of his people, there are those who are for him, who trust in him, and there are those who are false. He tells us this by parables, the sheep and the goats. He will separate the sheep out from the goats and the sheep will be his his people and the goats will go off to outer darkness. He describes this in the fishing net. The good fish will be kept and the old fish will be thrown away. He describes this in the wheat and the tares. The wheat will be kept and the tares will be thrown away all of which are images of God's people, all of which is God 
Jesus in the last days separating out those who are, are truly His and those who are actually His enemies. Those people don't trust the Lord. In fact, they hate Jesus. And the world hates Jesus. We must see and understand this. That this is that the, 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 the truth is there is no one that is neutral. And we can't coexist or all just get along. Something has to be wrong. And a great lie of the devil is to tell us that your Buddhist friend is good and therefore loves Jesus. Your Buddhist friend hates Jesus. And your family member that says love is love hates Jesus as well. And we know this because the Word tells us that those who love Jesus love His commandments. Those who love Jesus love His testimony. Those who love Jesus love what Jesus loves. Their end is destruction. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. There's a, there's a concerning pattern that I'm noticing among Christians in their late 50s and 60s as they become sin-tolerant and universal, or universalists. They start to diminish sin and not call it sin, but say that God accepts it or is okay with it. And then they come to an understanding that, well, if God is all-loving, then God will just forgive everyone and accept everyone into heaven. Why? Why are so many people going through their Christian journey and getting to their 50s and 60s and rejecting true biblical truth around Christ's judgment? And the only reason I think it could, could be stated is they've stopped listening to sound teaching and stopped truly reading the Bible as the ultimate authority in their life. They may still read the Bible, but they're bending the Bible to their whim and their will and not themselves to the will of God. So my plea to you, saints, is not to give up studying the truth of the Scriptures. That just because you remain faithful now, today, doesn't mean that there is a hidden unbelieving heart behind what you have. It doesn't mean that you will necessarily trust God in the future. Continue in confession. Acknowledge when you are doubting. Ideally, acknowledge to someone other than yourself so that you can get counsel outside of yourself. Because the storytellers of our age are trying to teach you falsely what is good, true and beautiful. Disney knows what they are doing when they bring out a pride range of clothing. They are indoctrinating the next generation so that the next generation grows up being okay with sin. Our storytellers know that they are teaching us what is good, true and beautiful. And what they think is good, true and beautiful is actually wicked, vile and evil in God's eyes. So I ask, what story are you listening to? Are you listening to the story of our King, who has won vast victories through the death on the cross, who has 
died because of sinful human flesh? Or are we listening to the stories of our world? And I genuinely challenge you, if you are immersing your mind in the stories of our world, your mind is not being renewed by the Word of God. This passage continues on to be very explicit. In verse 10 it says, You will destroy the descendants from the earth and from their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight and you will aim at their faces with your bows. Verse 11 doesn't shy away from the fact that the enemies of God plan evil. They devise mischief. Psalm 2 tells us the rulers of the earth set themselves against God. And Ephesians 4 tells us that there are those who are carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. The world is not neutral to God. They want to undo the justice of God. They want to tell a story that makes God look evil, God look mean, unkind and unloving. The mischief devices of this world is that they are teaching you through their stories what is beautiful, what is justice, what is goodness, etc. And if you're filling your mind with this, you will be dethroning God, dethroning God. Matthew Henry says on this passage, those that aim to unking David aim in effect to unking God, Yahweh. What is devised and designed against religion? against the instruments, of, instruments God raises up to support and advance it, it is evil and mischievous. And God takes it as a device and design against himself and will so reckon, and, and will so reckon for it. The world can try and unking Jesus, but ultimately it will fail. They will not succeed, says this psalm. Psalm 2 says, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs at the plans of men. Ultimately, this passage tells us in both verse 10 and verse 12 uh, and 11 that they, they will be destroyed from the earth. Their offsprings were from among the men, uh, children of men. Their mischievous devices will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. They will not succeed. This secular worldview that surrounds us today are our Philistines that surround David in his day. David had many enemies, but the greatest of his enemies were the Philistines in the day, and they did not win. God's people won out. Today, this secular worldview, this materialistic worldview, is coming crashing down. God's arrow is aimed at its faces and it will not continue. The aim to destroy the family unit, to undo masculinity and femininity, to call what is good evil and evil good, it will all fail. Because King Jesus has won before and he's winning now and he's going to win in the end is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It is now here today, it is, it is growing here today, and it will be complete in the end. 
And the one who trusts in the Lord will say with David, Be exalted, O my Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. In the day Christ wins, we will praise his name for destroying the wicked of our age. If you are one who trusts in Jesus, you will say this along with the saints. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we must feel the weight of sin when it comes to a passage on judgment. We must feel the weight of Christ's death and resurrection. That He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. Sin is not to be laughed at or tolerated. It is to be put to death. And Lord, I pray that as we saints of your, uh, your people, we would put to death sin. We would not tolerate it, laugh at it, or enjoy it, but we would despise and reject it. And that we would trust in you, Lord Jesus, who has had the victory over sin, Satan, and death, and who is having the victory today and will accomplish his victory. That the wicked will perish and will not inherit the earth, and the righteous will not be moved. Lord, we praise you, we exalt your name, we lift you high, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.